The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk I Think. Now, 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 hold on a second. You either need to say that again three more times or say it once real slow like... You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 63 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 24th of November, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's show, Rob D. and I will discuss his recent recurrent training event, the return to the max and Aviator Tony's most recent trip. Yeah, I took quite a bit of a hiatus from flying, about three weeks. We discussed what it's like to come back from flying after a few weeks off on a previous show, but nothing really has changed uh, in that regard. But we're going to discuss what the flying was like and how I adapted to it. Joining us today is a superb Squawk Ident co-host. He is enjoying his temporary bachelor pad while he's all alone in a big palace with nothing to do but podcast. He's a former international and professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech and RC aircraft commander, a pickleball master, a commercial drone operator, and currently a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his fortress of isolation from somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, please help me in welcoming back to the show, Mr. Rob D. Rob, how the hell are you? Hey, Tony. I'm doing really well. I'm actually working on adding one more uh, bullet statement to my intro, and that is I'm trying out. Have you ever tried out disc golf? No, disc golf. No. Another addicting game, man. (laughs) It's so fun. I uh, just got into it the other day, and uh, I had a blast. I I love to play golf. Um, and basically this is just basically throwing a Frisbee and you're playing the game of golf with the Frisbee. So you have a basket to throw it in, you have a tee box. And instead of having like water hazards, uh, trees and sand traps, um, my particular course is all like trees and like, you have to like whiz this Frisbee and they have like drivers, putters, you know, mid range. So you basically pick your you know, club or your disc for the particular shot. And they, they, um, you know, they, they have discs for distance. They have some that have more uh, curving tendencies than others. It's really interesting and it's a lot of fun. So is this where like you're at the park and you see these metal poles with these chain baskets? That's it. That is it. So that's called disc golf. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, I never thought I'd really get into it. And uh, one of my uh, daughter's um, friends, her parents um, started playing it. 
uh, just for, you know, to get out of the house with, with all this COVID stuff. And our local uh, community center has a disc golf course, which has nine, nine, I guess you call it nine holes, nine baskets. I don't know. So learning the terminology, but um, he's like, Hey, you ought to come out and, and play. So uh, I, I met him out there. He gave me a couple of his, you know, his own discs that, that uh, he had in his bag and we just started throwing discs. And I tell you what, man, I get a, a good rush just, you know, whipping that disc because it's the same motion that I used to do for racquetball, the backhand uh-huh. motion. So I, I can really just crank on it. Now, I got to tell you, I am as wild as a, you know, hyena <laughs> when I throw <laughs> it. Yeah, <laughs> There's, I definitely need to practice. But, you know, after three or four good, you know, really hard, long, hard throws, um, I started to, you know, get an idea of the trajectory of the, of that particular disc. Mm-hmm. And I was able to you kind of, you know, bring it in a little, little more and have a little more control with it. But, um, gosh, it's fun. Uh, you ought to try it. It's, it's yeah. good for everybody. The kids, you know, wife, everybody can play it. Yeah. I've seen so. some people playing that at, at some of the local parks that we have courses. Yeah for that um yeah it always seemed interesting i thought man talk about you have to really have some good aim with a frisbee to well and that's that. that's the challenge i mean it it is i mean you can make it you know there's obviously there's some there's always somebody better than anybody and there's pros in this game disc golf but um you know i'm certainly nowhere near that but uh yeah there's a lot of skill and there's a lot of um you know knowledge that that needs to go into it if you want to compete at, at a top level yeah. But if you just want to go out there and have fun, I mean, anybody can do it. But I think the best thing of the sport at a, amongst amongst many other things is that it doesn't take that long to play. So we played nine holes. And even with like <laughs> me throwing these things into the woods and having to go, you know, find <laughs> it in the woods, I think we were done in probably 30, 35 minutes at, at most. Huh. Um, so you know, you can go out and play nine or 18 holes in easily an hour and a half and be done and, and, and thoroughly enjoy it, you know? So it doesn't take all day, like the real golf. And, um, there was quite a bit of, uh, as I'm learning, there's quite a bit of courses to play in my area. So anyway, (laughs) we're going to add that to the, uh, to my intro, the the disc golf (laughs) champions. Well, I'm not you know, sure I'm a champion, but I'm working on it. You're working on it. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and that's really cool that you did that. I pretty much had, uh, you know, just these three weeks between flying and not by choice. Uh, as right. we've discussed here, the zero timeline is what Legacy Airlines has adapted in order to uh, minimize the loss of revenue. Uh, by reducing the payroll department um, in the pilot department yeah. by offering zero timelines or conditional zero timelines. And of course we know about furloughs. Well, yeah. I, I was lucky enough not to get furloughed as, as we've, we've discussed, but I was unfortunate that I had an option in there in lieu of furlough conditionally uh, give me a zero timeline for six months right. uh, because I'd rather at least keep current and fly and have an income uh, rather than go on unemployment, which is not something I want to do. Um, well, that's that's the card that I was dealt. And uh, unfortunately, uh, 
I don't get to bid my schedule. Right. Uh, so um, unlike more senior pilots and pilots on the regular payroll, uh, they get to bid every month and they get whatever they get and they have a line guarantee. I don't have that. Uh, with that said, uh, I was able to pick up quite a bit of flying for the month of November. Unfortunately, Good. it was all at the tail end. So I, uh, oh, yeah. I had the first part of the, the month pretty much off. I did have a trip. It was going to be a quick two-day trip that um, I got called by the training department and, and they told me, yeah, um, you're being displaced because the captain needed to get his Hawaii qual and so you get to stay home and collect your pay. Which, hey, that's great. Thanks. That just meant I had three weeks off. Well, what did I do in those three weeks? Um, took advantage of the situation. Uh, we already talked about how we I painted the house. Well, I had some trim work to do. I had replaced mm -hmm. a couple of the uh, the fascia boards up in the front yard that you know, were 40 years old and the wood was getting rotten. So uh, replaced it with some nice redwood trim pieces. And cool. of course, I had to seal, prime, and paint over all that. Um, recently hung the Christmas lights. The holiday, oh, the holiday lights. Um, I nice. had not hung them yet because I was saying, let's not do that until after we paint the house. Well, now the house is painted and um, I had the time off. And so, yeah. but I didn't want to staple or nail anything <laughs> to, the new to the brand new painted, <laughs> not a nail, not a, so uh, What'd you do? I ended up, uh, I found at Home Depot, these screws that have an eye, uh, peg at the end of it right so it's for installing uh, i think it's for installing some kind of drywall or some kind of sheet metal but anyway it was in the aisle with like where the stucco is in home depot and a mm -hmm. pack of a hundred of them was like 10 bucks i thought hey perfect so i went up there behind the fascia and i every 24 inches i drilled in one of these fasteners and i happened to have uh, about 500 feet of steel solid steel cable uh, mm -hmm. that i was using for the garden whenever i would string up a vine or you know grapes or whatever i was doing in the garden that way it wouldn't rust and so i had this cable already and that's what i did i hung this oh. cable behind the fascia with these um fasteners and and it came out really nice so then cool. it went up and when i hung the christmas lights they they hang on the wire you don't see that from the street right. or from the from the curb and uh and they come Sweet. out nice and straight when i take them down at the end of the season uh the wire stays yeah and uh then next year it's going to be real easy to just hang them up and you know a couple oh. minutes nice job so man. i did that um found out that my trailer had i was i have a like a little flatbed utility trailer that i use when i go run errands and grab two by fours from home depot and things like that well mm -hmm. i couldn't move it the other day it was a cold morning as the temperature dropped and i couldn't move it i, I had to move it aside and i thought uh oh what's going on here well one of the bearings uh ah. i thought maybe it seized well what happened was the grease was so old on the bearing that it actually kind of solidified so oh, i wow. i popped off the the center cap and pulled out the cotter pin and took the the retaining nut off and i started scraping the grease and it was coming out like dried clay so, oh boy like dirt yeah so i thought oh this is bad you know so i pulled everything out 
ended up cleaning the bearings out with some uh, carburetor cleaner and gasoline, you know, just really getting them clean. Yeah. And I salvaged them. They were good. They weren't Sweet. pitted. And, you know, the seat was, was decent, bought some uh, high temperature lithium grease. And if anybody out nice. there likes to tinker around with automobiles and you know how messy <laughs> uh, axle grease can be, oh, bearing boy. grease. Yeah. Um, yep. So that took a day. And, uh, and then we were just cleaning out the garage and, you know, doing all these little things. Uh, by the time the three weeks were up, we had accomplished quite a bit. And amazing. then I had to pack for my trip that I just got back from a little (laughs) four day trip. And, you know, it was again, really super weird to, to, to have to deal with this trip and and how to pack for it, how to get ready, you know, and, and yeah. check the weather. And it just, it's just something that's kind of difficult to go back into it. I almost didn't want to go back to work. I was yeah. getting so yeah, much you, done. I felt productive. I know. And, and I, I don't know if you felt the same way I do. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I have so much to do. I don't have enough time, even with all the time off. You know what I mean? I just always something that needs attention yeah. and uh, it's just never ending. And it's like, how did I ever, you know, get to any or if any of this at all, you know, when I was actually working, uh, you know, a full super crazy schedule, you know, you, you come home and you have two or three days, sometimes four days off. And before you know it, you know, your, your bags are packed and you're out the door again and uh, starting to cycle all over again. It's tough. Yeah, it, it is. And, uh, but hey, that's, uh, we don't have a nine to five, you know, when you're yeah. an aviator, especially in a, a professional environment, you are at the mercy of crew scheduling and your, your schedule and what you bid. And if you're on reserve, yep. you're really, you know, how do you get anything done on reserve? Cause you can get a phone yeah. call saying, we need you at the airport in two hours. Yeah. You know, how do how do you yep. start projects? You don't, you can't just leave them you know, undone, (laughs) grab your stuff and go. It's, it's difficult. So these are some of the challenges that we deal with, uh, you know, as, as an aviator, it's not all, you know, poolside margaritas on the layover. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) It's nice when you do get those, but no, it's not like that all the time. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, what we've been up to. So now that our pre-flight is complete, let's push off the gate, start up those virtual podcast engines, and get ready for takeoff. So Rob, you know, you were telling me that uh, since our last recording, which was, uh, I think, back on the 11th of November, uh, that you actually flew a trip. You got a trip uh, in your schedule that actually wasn't modified or manipulated in any way, and you got to fly it. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened? Well, uh, actually, I I probably should have disclosed that it was modified and oh, changed, <laughs> but um, it was for the better, believe it or not. Um, oh. And it and you know it didn't get modified or changed until we actually started the trip. So um, you know we started the trip um, with no idea that we were going to get uh, you know get rerouted during our four day trip. Um, and the first leg was to, uh, from DFW to DC. So I haven't, I've been to DC a couple of times this year, but, uh, you know, with the way flying has been, you know, you don't get there as, as quite as often as, uh, as you would normally, at least I haven't, I haven't been able to get there quite as often as I normally would. So this is probably the second time, maybe the third time this year. So it's always nice. 
going into DC and, um, uh, this particular flight was great. It was just a VFR day. And, um, we flew the, uh, Mount Vernon visual to runway one, one of my favorites to DC. So yeah, that's a great, great arrival. So, you know, you start up setting up with the downwind on the West side of the airport. And as you're, you know, turn downwind, you can see, uh, the Capitol and, and, uh, the white house. And of course the monuments on the left side of the airplane. And as you can continue to descent, um, along the Potomac on your left side, you can uh, see where the, uh, Mount Vernon, which is, I, I can't remember. That's uh, George Washington's George home. George Washington's home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So as you uh, make a left hand turn around the point with the left wing <laughs> around, uh, George Washington's home, you line up with the uh, runway one localizer and uh, join the glide slope and you descend down into uh, um, into uh, DC landing runway one. It was a beautiful night. Great, great trip. Uh, we got to DC and um, the next leg was DC to Miami. Um, the trip was going to end in Philly. So we were DFW to DC, DC to Miami, and then Miami to Philly. So it's quite a day. Uh, We actually were looking at about eight hours and 45 minutes of flying. So we were only 15 minutes um, shy of our federally regulated maximum hours we can fly for the the day, which is nine hours. Um, And because of uh, the the actual sits and, and, um, time in between flights, we were actually pushing our, I think it was 13 hour, uh, duty day window. Um, so it was a 13 hours. I can't remember exactly what it was. It's either 12 or 13 hour duty day window because of our sign in time. I forget all the actual specifics, but that was the most limiting time was actually our duty day instead of the flying time. So, I mean, I mean, with that being said, you know, I, I just said we only had 15 minutes to spare in flying time and our duty day was the most limiting factor. So we really had no time for any delays at yeah. all. You're up so against the first both fences there. We're up against both fences. Right. Yeah. But so we flew DFW to D.C., D.C. to Miami. And when we got to Miami, um, actually, I need to rewind the clock just a scooch. Leaving DFW, we had a mechanical delay. Um, the plane was brought wow. to the gate a little bit late, and there was a couple of uh, things that needed to be addressed. They're minor in nature, um, but nevertheless, it took a little bit of time. So that was eating away at our duty day clock. Yeah, and that was one of the uh, one of the uh, contributors to uh, you know the the most limiting time was our duty day clock. So, anyways, when we got to Miami. Um, quick turn. We're trying to, and we actually had a plane swap. We went to the new gate for the, for the flight, go to Philly and come to find out the plane isn't there. It's down for maintenance. And it's in the maintenance <laughs> hangar. Oh, so, so, uh, and, and I got to tell you, I was flying with one of, uh, my favorite captains on the 737 fleet. He and I have flown a couple times before and we get along great. And it's always a good, it's always, we always have good conversations in the cockpit. And whenever we get time to socialize outside of the uh, cockpit, we go out and, and uh, do that. And so he, he turns to me and gives me the bad news. And he's like, yeah, you know, we're planes down for maintenance. And he goes, I ask everybody, cause I always give them the option. If you have the choice to extend your 
you know, your duty day, per, which we're allowed to do per the regulations up to two hours, would you be willing to do that? And I immediately said, no, Mark, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to extend because it, I already had an early day to begin with, with, you know, just normal families, uh, you know, normal personal stuff before the trip. So I had already had a long day and I didn't want to push it any longer than I had to. So, and he's like, glad you said that. Cause I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay. And so anyway, uh, immediately, uh, after that conversation, um, he got a call from cruise scheduling. And of course, you know, to, at his discretion, whether he'd like to answer it or not. So he answered it and he said, Hey, they're, they're going to send us to New Orleans, New Orleans. Um, are you willing to go to that, do the New Orleans trip? And I was like, well, it falls within our duty day. I'm sure. Yeah. Why not? Let's go. You know, I, I'd rather stay in Miami. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, uh, New Orleans ain't so bad. And he's like, yeah, it looks like they're going to give us about 30 hours in New Orleans. Oh, and wow. then, uh, so I was like, well, yeah, let's do it, man. So, uh, we volunteered to take that trip and, uh, we ended up landing in New Orleans, uh, with a, well, with about 30 to 45 minutes to spare in our duty day. And, uh, we spent the night in New Orleans. Now that, I don't know if anybody's ever been to New Orleans, but, uh, one of the things we had, uh, we had to look forward to not only was the, you know, the local Cajun food and and uh you know gumbo and all that stuff but we were looking forward to getting back to the world war ii museum which is downtown now if any of you have you ever been there tony no i haven't i've been to new orleans but not the museum okay so if you have a a long overnight um which i know they're kind of hard to come by but if you ever do um, i highly recommend you take a little time and take a walk down to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. It's downtown, so you have to stay in one of the, I think we have two or three hotels that we stay at downtown. And it's about a 10 minute walk from the hotel. Um, But this museum is one of the biggest attractions in uh, New Orleans. And um, it is a very, very well put together museum. The exhibits are fantastic. There's a lot of interaction going on and um since we're aviators they have a very very good aviation exhibit of uh all the world war ii airplanes and uh uh, one of the the highlights of the museum is a 45 minute video that is narrated by tom hanks i think it's directed and narrated by tom hanks um and it's a 4d presentation so there's, uh, I have to figure, so they have things that pop out of the screen, come out of the ceiling, you know, kind of like that California Adventure thing where the seats shake and, oh. you know, water gets sprayed in your face and, you, they, you know, they puff smoke in there so you can smell the aromas of certain things. And um, so during this video, they, uh, they kind of tell the story of what led up to the war and, you know, all the whole war, you know, gearing up for the wartime effort and then going through the war and then of course the ending. So during this presentation, you know, you're, you're experiencing all these sights and sounds and smells and feelings and emotions and stuff. And it gets you kind of in the mood to go see the, uh, to go see the museum. So when you walk through the museum, um, you, you know, you read all these affidavits and things that, that uh, these certain, you know, armies and Marines and Navy guys and U S air Corps, 
uh, experience and what they had to do. And it's like, oh man, it's amazing. Um, you know, that, that we were involved in that conflict and how, how the, uh, the greatest generation stepped up to the plate and knocked it out of the park, you know? So it was really cool. Um, so anyways, coming back to the trip, <laughs> spent yeah, the whole day in on, New Orleans. I, I checked it out while you were telling me, cause I, I had not okay. heard about this. I was so interested, uh, beyond all boundaries, that's is it. the, yep. uh, the 4d presentation beyond all boundaries showing exclusively at the national world war II museums, Solomon victory theater is that's a 4d journey through the war that changed the world. This museum-produced experience is narrated by executive producer Tom Hanks with Phil Hetema served, serving as show producer and creative director. Beyond All Boundaries features dazzling effects, CGI animation, multi-layered environments, and first-person accounts from the trenches of the home front, read by Brad Pitt, Toby Maguire, Gary Sinise, Patricia Clarkson, and Wendell Pierce, and more. So, yeah, that's a... I would Amazing. really enjoy seeing that. I got to tell you. So if you do not have a long overnight there and you have just maybe an hour to kill, I would recommend just going to the museum just to watch that presentation. I believe it's a $7 admission to that particular um, thing. It's only 45 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So you're in and out. But if you don't have time to see the museum, now the museum is gigantic. It's huge. I mean, we practically sped walk through most of the exhibits because it's so big, you know, and, and, and I, I, there's a couple things that I, that I was really interested in that I wanted to stop and read. So what, whenever I got to that point, I stopped and read it, but the exhibit is so big that you can literally spend two days, three days there and not see everything. So if you don't have a lot of time, you just want to go just see that, that one um, movie beyond all boundaries, it's well worth it. So look, something to do, go to New Orleans, check that out. It's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, That's it. I'm yeah. going to start uh, looking for New Orleans overnight for that. Dude. <laughs> oh man, you got to do it, man. It's great. And the food's great, right? I mean, you can't beat the, uh, you know, the Cajun food down there. So Absolutely. We had, we had our fair share of uh, <clears throat> dirty balls. So what? <laughs> say what? Dirty balls, man. It's That's basically she said. dirty rice crunched in the balls, and it's uh, so they call them dirty balls. So <laughs> That's dirty. It's fantastic, man. It's fantastic. <laughs> Yummy. Yeah. A little bit salty, but <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they're not sweaty. <laughs> yeah, at least they're not sweaty yeah, balls. Could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. So um, so let's see, the next day. We flew really simple, one leg from, or not the next day. It was the fall, the day after. So we had a whole day off. Yeah, in, 30 in hours, yeah. So the day, uh, day after that, we flew Miami, I'm sorry, uh, New Orleans to Miami. Mm-hmm. So one, day, one leg to Miami. Nice. We got in at about 9.30 in the morning, and we stayed, um, it's not South Beach, but it's, we're still on Collins, so we're, it's like North Miami. North Miami Beach. Oh, were so, you at the uh, Confidant? No, not the Confidant. We were at the, uh, I think it was called the uh, Holiday Inn. Hold on, let me just double check here. Wow. So you actually yeah. get to stay at a layover hotel that's on the beach. Yeah, we're, we're just on the other side of the beach. So it is called the Miami Residence Inn. 
Oh, wow. Sunny Isle. Oh, Sunny so Isles. Yeah, yeah. So you're on Collins Street, but you're way up at like 170. Right. North of the Sherry. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Well north of the Sherry. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're pretty far away, but, um, that was nice, man. I, I really enjoyed that. And you and I were talking before for, uh, uh, pre-show about <laughs> going out and getting some exercise and how we haven't been able to do a lot of it just because of the, you know, current, con- current climate and the conditions of everything. Yeah. This is one opportunity that I had that I took to uh, get out there and, and, and get some exercise. So just South of the hotel, is a very popular um, sightseeing um, area, and it is called Hallover Inlet. And um, this particular inlet is a uh, uh, an access for the intercoastal waterways. Okay. That they can access the uh, the uh, uh, Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. and right at this particular inlet, um, the two tides collide or two, um, I guess, yeah, two tides collide. So the waves are just crazy there all the time. And it's very, if you, if you look on YouTube, just Google or YouTube Hallover Inlet, you see these boats just crashing into these waves. And these people go there and they videotape these things on purpose because every now and then you're going to see a pretty exciting boat ride through this inlet. Um, sometimes you see people fall off, people have to get rescued. Sometimes the boat actually submarines under the, uh, you know, under the, the bow of the boat submarines under a wave takes on so much water that it can't, you know, it can't bilge it out. So <laughs> the boat ends up practically sinking. Um, and then there's also some really impressive boats that just cruise right through it with no problem. But anyway, sometimes I go down a wormhole at night when I'm trying to uh, you know, get myself uh, tired for bed that I'll sit there and turn on uh, YouTube and watch some of these haul over inlet uh, videos. And, and uh, since I have a boat, you know, it's kind of something that uh, it, it's right down my alley. Uh, but anyway, I took the, uh, the opportunity to walk down there. It's about a three mile uh, walk run to the, uh, to the inlet. So it was perfect. So I, I you know, kind of half walk, half ran down there. Um, got a couple thousand steps, sat along the, uh, the rocks there and and watched the boats go in and out for about two hours. And then I turned around and did the whole thing again all the way back. So um, it was really good. Um, Had some Cuban food for dinner at one of the uh, restaurants. How can you you, forget uh, about it? Right. You got (laughs) to get some rice and beans and some plantains. Yeah. Um, so some uh, dirty balls and <laughs> some, yeah. Well, we had dirty balls the other day. <laughs> I wasn't gonna have them again. I didn't want to get a. You know, you have more than once. It's. A, I think it might be called an addiction. So yeah, I get addicted go. to dirty balls. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, went back to the hotel and uh, had a good night there. And then the next day was a pretty late show, but um, we were gonna work Miami to Chicago and then Chicago to Dallas. And that day, Miami was doing pretty good for weather, but Chicago was getting hit with some really, really strong winds, uh, 45 gusting to 50. Um, So uh, we were kind of concerned about that. And of course, as you know, and I know that, you know, our operations stop at 50, anything above 50 knots. Thankfully, the winds were right down the runway. um, And the only thing we really had to deal with was the possibility of wind shear. Mm-hmm. And some icing in the clouds as we uh, descended into Chicago. So, th- but that flight 
pretty much went off uh, uneventful and we were able to get uh, get into Chicago and um, head on back to Dallas uh, without without any delays or any incidents. So did you note your ground speed on the approach? Oh, yes. Uh, They did slow us too. Um, normally they're like, you know, what? 250 and then with uh, 180 to the yeah, 210 200, and then 180, and then 180 to the marker. To, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, well, they slowed us down though. They did slow us down over the, uh, uh, crossing the, the shoreline. So mm. right over the city, we're landing a two eight center and they had us slowed at the 180 knots way out there. Oh wow. And our grounds, our ground speed was, was around 130 the whole time. I mean, we were just practically, you know, hovering slow flight, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think a Cessna can go that fast, uh, with a little tailwind. So <laughs> yeah. And, and I know we there's a lot of GA pilots going, Oh, 130. What are you, what are you scoffing at? It's like, no, 130 <laughs> in a, a seven, three or a bus. Oh, oh yeah, you're like, yeah, going, are we moving? <laughs> you're waiting for the <laughs> stick shaker on? to go off and you know, you're going to announce, Hey, this, this first is this call is to to the left today. So no, that yeah. was, that was neat. That was a, uh, pretty uneventful, um, trip. Thank, thank God. Um, and, um, let's see, I flew back to Dallas and that was the end of the four day trip that week, which was quite fun. Yeah. Um, I, I gotta tell you, like I said, I flew with a, a good, good friend of mine. Uh, we get along great and, um, it, he made it a, a, a joy to fly with, you know, the trip was so easy. He was so easy to work with, you know, yeah. just like, you, you mentioned a lot of comments, you know, when, when they include you in all the decision-making and, and everything, it's such, so nice to be able to just work with a crew member. That's, that's just, you know, enjoys what he does as much as you do. And, um, you know, just, you you could tell, you know, everybody likes flying with them or, you know, most people do. So I, I had a good time. Yeah. Talk about night and day difference. You know, uh, we've said it many times, you know, Having an open kind of perspective, a good personality, being friendly, being respectful, um, knowing your place as well, and knowing your audience is no. crucial as well. It helps right. uh, helps prevent uh, foot mouth disease. You know that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we were all guilty of that. Yeah. <laughs> so sure. You know, it, it is such a pleasure sometimes when you get to fly with someone who you've flown with before, who you know, uh, who you can consider more than just an acquaintance at work. It really changes the entire atmosphere of work. Um, so yeah, congratulations that you got a chance to do that. Thanks. Yeah, it was awesome. So you did that yeah, trip and, and uh, it, you know, you got some adventure out of it and you rolled right into training not a couple days after that, right? Yeah, I had, uh, let's see, four days off prior to starting training. And um, I think I mentioned in previous podcasts, I usually start studying about a month out, mm-hmm. um, just kind of reviewing some of the stuff that we need to study. And, you know, we've got a whole bunch of, uh, whole bunch of uh, study materials that we have access to. Um, online and in our EFB or electronic flight bags that um, that they give us to uh, prepare for our training events. So I started diving into that stuff, but usually the last four days or the last three days, I really, really um, go knee deep into like, you know, the uh, call outs, profiles, um, limitations. I mean, really, really get you know, try to make sure I know those verbatim. And, and I mean, you, I know it anyway, it's just refresher for now. Right. But, um, that, you know, that way, when you go into the training event, 
you know, that you're not struggling with that kind of stuff. Right. I, I don't understand people, people do that. I, they, they struggle with normal basic stuff that I feel you should know, you know, like, like the back of your hand, you know, should be just second nature. Yeah. Um, so studied up, showed up for training and uh, the first day, as you know, it's just all classroom stuff, um, putting out fires with a, uh, you know, water, a fire bottle that's filled with water, <laughs> supposed imitating it, Halon, um, and uh, you know, three hours of systems, which, you know, just goes by in a flash and um, found out who my training, ca- who my captain would be for the uh, simulator event the next day. Um, he was a 20 year right seater in the super 80 and he just upgraded to left seat on the 737 about two about a year or two ago okay so it's about a year's uh, worth of flying in the left seat experience yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so he's from the area he's like one of those good old boys you know he's deep south guy just you know has a little ranch you know, very, very slow nice. Southern draw. And he talks really slow. Nothing comes out of his mouth very fast. Listen, kid. <laughs> so I took a little bit, a little bit in me to kind of like bite my tongue and sit on my hands and, you know, kind of let him go through his motions at his speed. And, you know, so it, it, it was good because I slowed me down and made me, you know, work at the at 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 a crew pace you know because you want to work at his pace too and you know whenever you need to pick it up you can insert yourself and and say hey you got you're ready for your flaps you're ready for your gear or whatever you know kind of prompt them um but we had a really good training event and the uh the uh the czech airman on the third day was made i mean i'm sure you get it too tony from your guys but he was so appreciative he's like man you guys came so well prepared, you know, that I ha- he's like, I have nothing for you. You know, I mean, the stuff that I have are just little tiny nitpicking stuff. But I mean, he's like, man, you guys really, really um, did a great job. It's like, I don't have anything to debrief you on. I mean, is there, like we were done like less, I mean, I'm sorry, more than a half hour early. I mean, we were uh-huh. done probably 45 minutes early. Yeah. Um, it was just a great training event. And I learned a lot because they, they really were uh, pushing some of the uh, the hot hot items, hot hot emphasis items on the seven three seven this year. Were mm-hmm. um, some of them were the takeoff flap settings that we have. Um, as you will know, um, we have quite a bit of flaps, <laughs> so quite a bit of options for flaps that we can take off with, um, and a um, couple of different power settings that we use. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's been a, uh, a, an increase in um, improper configuration of flaps and power settings um, on some of our departures, which is triggering, you know, Folkway alerts and uh, stuff like that. So, so Folkway is being the flight, uh, what yeah. is it? Flight assurance. Uh, yeah. Flight Folkway. operations, quality assurance. I That's believe. it. Yeah. yeah. So now, your process on a normal operation, how do you determine what your power setting and flap setting for takeoff is going to be on a normal flight for a 7.3? So that's a good question. So the process basically starts back at dispatch. Um, the dispatchers, um, when they 
put the put the flight plan together. Um, they collect all the, uh, the the information from the uh, reservation systems and and all that stuff, and they get a good idea of what the uh, the passenger and cargo weight is going to be. Um, so from that system, they uh, they base you know they basically plug in how much weight we plan on carrying for cargo um, and passengers. Um, now what we need. We always need to have, obviously, as you know, <laughs> we always need to have the, enough fuel to get from point A to point B. But that's a variable number also. So, um, but it, it only varies, you know, a couple hundred pounds on a given day. But if you have to add alternates, you know, depending on the, how far the alternate is, that can vary by thousands of pounds, depending on how many thousands of pounds fuel you carry. So long story short, once they compile all those numbers, which is usually about an hour before the flight planning system kicks out a planned takeoff weight. So this is all the numbers that they have figured we would, uh, all the all the weight that we are gonna carry for takeoff one hour before departure. So with that takeoff weight, it takes in all the ambient temperature and the winds and field pressure and, and everything, uh, elevation and pressure, and basically all computerized, instead of taking out your E6B or whiz wheel, it does it all on a computer thing. And it spits out your takeoff weight and the actual performance of your airplane as relative to the runway that you're taking off from. So with that being said, it determines what the, the most um, efficient power setting is and most efficient flap setting for the weight and the runway conditions of that particular airport for that airplane. Now, normally... Um, in like, let's say we're taking off out of Dallas where the runways are, you know, 13,000 pounds, uh, I'm sorry, not 13,000 pounds, 13, that'd feet, be a pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty light runway, I guess. <laughs> 13,000 <000 laughs> foot long runway. Uh -huh. Um, we have plenty of runway to use and we can use the most conservative power setting and also the most conservative flap setting. Now being, you know, with that being said, the most conservative power setting for takeoff on a 737 NG is uh, 22,000 pounds of thrust. So it's 22K um, takeoff. And um, you could, we even reduce that a little bit more using what we call an assumed temperature, um, basically tricking the motor to thinking, I guess it's uh, what higher or- Yeah, uh, as if colder. the, so the, the each, manufacturer rates their engines so at sea level at standard temperature right. this is how much thrust they would put out at yeah. max at 100 percent, and then right. they go okay well how can we reduce that thrust uh so that we don't overstress the engines really every, right. for every takeoff because those airplanes are up and down all day long so yeah, yeah. they go okay let's assume the outside the temperature, temperature is much higher, higher, being, 39 degrees or right. whatever. Celsius. So in that case, because of density altitude uh, in, in yep. very simple Pressure terms, altitude, it's yep. really not that, but uh, because it's a higher temperature, the engine would then produce less thrust. thrust. Yep. So yep. what you're doing is you're putting in to the flight management computer, hey, let's put an assumed temperature that's higher. In the Airbus, we call that a flex temperature. Flex temperature. Yep. Right. But on, on the on the 737, you call it the assumed temperature. Assumed so you, temperature. So not only were you conservative in the fact that you used a lower power setting than 100%, uh, 
right. to save the the wear and tear on the on the jet engine. But you're also calculating an assumed temperature on top of that primary calculation to even exactly. further reduce the thrust output so that your engines are theoretically, say, producing only 88% power exactly. versus 100% power. Exactly. And all the stuff in the 737 is um, regulated by the engines. We call it the EEC, E-E-C electronic engine controls. So basically, you, 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 uh, your interface is using the FMC and the thrust levers. So in the FMC, you just plug in the, uh, the parameters with the temperatures and all that stuff and uh, thrust setting. And then the EEC will automatically calculate what your, your N1 target will be for, the, uh, for, that, for that particular takeoff. So that's basically that. Uh, we have, we have uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of how many different flap settings. One, two, three. Four, four flap settings for takeoff. Flaps one, flaps five, flaps 15, and flaps 25. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So flaps 25 for takeoff. So we can really, really, uh, we can, we can um, basically dial in the efficiency of the motor and the performance of the wing for any particular condition for takeoff. So for instance, in Santa Ana or uh, Orange County, we're having a really short runway. That's a 5,000 foot long runway. Uh, we use 27,000 pounds of thrust, which is a maximum rated thrust on, on the uh, 737 NG and flaps 25. And if the, if the uh, conditions allowed, we would, or if the conditions are required, we'll actually turn off the bleeds and the packs mm -hmm. to get to get the most performance out of the engine. The bleeds are basically the uh, air source off the engine. As you knew, Tony, I'm just saying this for the uh, for the listeners. For sure. uh, bleed source, which provide air conditioning uh, and and a, and a handful of other utility things that we use air for, like pressurization and anti ice. Uh, but at a short runway, like. Uh, like uh, Orange County, 5,000 feet, you want every single amount of air pressure going out the tailpipe of that, that motor. So we use turn off the bleeds and just shortly after takeoff, we'll reconfigure the bleeds and the packs so that we get the pressurization and air conditioning back in the airplane. But for the short period of time on takeoff, uh, we won't have any of that. Um, so anyway, um, that's what a 737 takeoff uh, um kind of uh, setting up, uh, you know, power and flap settings are. So we've been having an, a trend back to go back to the beginning of what started the conversation. There's been a trend of um, not setting the proper flaps or power settings um, for, for our takeoffs. Um, and we were trying to, you know, always kind of speculate what could it be. Right. Um, and they say that, uh, you know, a lot of it is could be, from we're having a lot of new hires. Uh, we have a lot of guys who are upgrading that have never flown the airplane. So they've coming from other airplanes and uh, coming into the 737 fleet for the very first time as a captain. Um, and it seems like all of that stuff is happening all at the same time. And the, the FOQA data and all the analysis show that all these things are happening around the same time that those, you know, those, the hiring and the upgrades are happening. So the trend so, is that the occurrences are happening statistically more so with either 
uh, low experience pilots in either seat. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so they're trying to make sure we're aware of that and make sure that, um, we, uh, you know, <laughs> adhere to this company SOPs and the TEM model, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. make sure we go through that. And actually with, during training with the Czech airmen, it was quite interesting to, uh, to go through another, another, actually another, um, hot topic for us was bleeds off takeoff. For some reason, we're taking off without the bleeds on when we're not required to or we're not supposed to via the checklist or procedure. And, um, you know, I'm sitting back there. I'm like, wow, how can that happen? But we went through the checklist and I think we counted 11 times during the checklist. We're supposed to check the bleed and the pack configuration on on the airplane. And for some reason... It gets past everybody 11 times. We actually make it in the air, yeah. triggers a cabin, a high cabin altitude condition yep. where, um, you know, you start getting red, 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 yeah. red warnings and, and, and bells and whistles going off in the cockpit. You know, so you've mentioned quite a few very, very telling things, very interesting uh, that I appreciate the, the bleed off for takeoff when it's not required. This can happen for many reasons. And like you said, for the 737, you check it like 11 times. And, and an yeah. Airbus driver or, or, or maybe somebody that's in GA is kind of like, oh, well, wow, that sounds like a lot. What's going on? Well, yeah. it's because it's a manual process. You have to physically do it and not only do it, but you have exactly. to do it in the right order to not get these uh, nuisance messages, right? Right. Um, and, and configuration problems. So mm-hmm. you you really have to be cognizant of that it's almost like your temperature control right you're always constantly going <laughs> cool the cabin yeah. down or heat the cabin up you're constantly changing that right until you get to cruise exactly. and then the engine power stays the same so why do you have to adjust it but exactly there's also something else that through our experiences you know a couple decades out here on the flight line seeing these things happen um there are those pilots out there usually pilots in command that take it upon themselves to go, well, uh, you know, the numbers say that we can take off with the bleeds on, but uh, I don't feel comfortable with that. Let's go with the uh, bleeds off for more performance. Uh, oh, 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 okay, Captain. And then, so, okay, now they're doing their, I want to say technique, but really it's a yeah. non, non-SOP yeah. procedure. It's their technique, right. which is not following the SOP procedure. And then you get up to, you're cruising up there, and after takeoff, the you know, you get distracted for your head's in a different place. And then the captain forgets to say, all right, yeah. you can go ahead, turn the bleeds on or the FO that doesn't normally do that might forget. Yep. And that's exactly how these things can happen. It's very, yeah. very so, explainable. So during your uh, last training event, did they uh, talk about that for the Airbus fleet too? Does that happen at all for the um, Airbus? No, th- no, with our air, we, we can do a flaps, uh, one, two, three, take off right. rarely ever. Do we do a flaps three? Uh, matter of fact, mm-hmm. I think the last time I did flaps three was leaving Maui. I think uh, high performance. That's the it's the highest performance takeoff you're going to do. You're going to do a, a to or, or a um, a to takeoff or what do they call it? A toga takeoff, mm-hmm. which is maximum maximum power. Uh, flaps three because what are you doing when you put flaps to three? Or, or don't you have more drag? Well, yes, but you also are making the wing more lift. longer, bigger, more surface area, so you can be airborne 
at a much lower speed so that you can make mm-hmm. that first segment climb restriction and you can have yep. the performance required and all that stuff. And you could lift off before the end of the runway or, or yeah. your V1 <laughs> calculation for your accelerated stop distance can be all, I mean, these are all, you know, technical jargon about performance. One of the weaker things, uh, that a pilot, uh, usually, uh, has in terms of their knowledge of performance because there's so many variables and it's very mathematical. Yeah. Um, but all these, all these factors come into play and we rarely do a flaps three takeoff on, on the Airbus. Uh, I think I've done it maybe a handful of times uh, in the past couple of years, the flaps yeah. two takeoff, which is uh, more common, especially doing, I've been doing a lot of transcons. So we have a lot of fuel. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to do a flaps two takeoff. Uh, sometimes now with the automated performance that we have, and we can adjust performance calculations, we can add tailwinds, we can add anti-ice yeah. on and off. We don't have to rely on the dispatcher over at Legacy Airlines to do that for right. us anymore. So a lot of times, like coming out of LA the other day, uh, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, I did an LA to Miami red eye. And yeah, it's a pretty long flight. We had a lot of fuel. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a flaps two takeoff, but it was not a, uh, a, f- a maximum thrust takeoff. It, was still, yep. it was still uh, what we call a flex takeoff, which is where we, uh, you know, calculating what the assumed temperature is. Um, but it was still a, yeah. a flaps two takeoff because that's yeah. what the computer generated. Yeah, uh, right winds now. were calm. So as we taxied out to the runway, the captain goes, well, winds are calm, but just in case we get a little two or three or four knot tailwind on at the time of departure, when they clear us to take the runway, let's just run the numbers real quick with a five knot tailwind. And I thought, man, that's that's smart because that's worst case scenario. And then you don't have to go, well, we can't accept your takeoff clearance. We have to, you know, calculate, get the the numbers. numbers, right? Yeah. So before we even left the ramp, I'm already, you know, we ran, we started the engines and I'm running the uh, numbers for a five knot tailwind out of LAX Mm -hmm. and it didn't change our numbers at all. So when we got out there, regardless of if we had up to a five knot tailwind or winds were calm or whatever we had, we knew we were good. Nice. So, I mean, these little things, these little nuances, these little techniques, thinking far ahead of the scenario, not just the aircraft really does yeah. make a big difference. Yeah, so, one of the things they, uh, they, they're they just now imp- implementing, did I say that right? <laughs> implementing, uh-huh. Yeah, right now they're uh, just now starting to implement is a uh, is a ACARS message to mitigate the uh, bleeds off takeoff configuration after takeoff. So in other words, if you take off with, the ble- with bleeds off, um, there, <laughs> there is a uh, ACARS message that comes through our printer, and we get a message on our scratch pad that says, "Hey, you just took off with the bleeds off. Make sure you remember to reconfigure it." Oh, that's smart. That's a great thing to have, right? Yeah. Um, and also on the um, rewind the uh, the uh, the 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 clock here a couple more minutes prior to that. If you do change a runway or a flap configuration in the, the bot or not, I'm not actually, let me say that all over again. If you request a TPS or which is takeoff performance system data um, from, from the computer for a different flap or different 
takeoff thrust setting, the computer will automatically uplink those numbers to your FMC. Oh. And you have to f- either reject them or accept them. Oh, that's so, nice. Yeah. So like in your case where you, you, you requested the tailwind, it will automatically uplink. Not only will it come off the printer, but it will automatically electronically uplink into the computer. And if um, you can accept the numbers and it will automatically make those your new numbers. Or you can say, well, I was just like you did. I just wanted to see what it would be for performance so you can reject them. But you have the printout ready to go so that if you did get it, you can go ahead and just plug in the numbers without having to request the data all over again. That's a very so, nice feature. Yeah, we don't, we don't have that. We have uh, you can change the runway assignment and then it'll say, well, right. hey, uh, based on the runway change, do you want us to use the preloaded numbers? And you can you can do that, yeah. verify that. Right. Um, but, yeah, we don't ever do that. We always verify yeah. off the printout because sometimes you don't even have the, the numbers for a tailwind or you don't have the, right. the new runway that they're going to. They're going to use. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, and it's so great. That's cool. I'm glad you had a positive uh, training experience. It's always a yeah. wonderful thing to hear from your Czech airmen, especially after your final event that, Hey, thanks for coming prepared. I mean, yeah. talk well, about, I, I was going to say, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I, I, I got to give my, I got to pat myself on the back here, but I have to find it before I start talking about it. I got an email yesterday. Um, from the company let me just back up here sorry i didn't have this ready to talk about but um let's see it's got to be right around here i actually got a like an attaboy from the czech airman right i know i was like are you crazy i never get these things (laughs) you better (laughs) print that out and frame it buddy (laughs) i know i'm trying to find it where'd it go wait that's saturday it would have been Yesterday was what, Monday? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, come on. Well, you were in training day before yesterday, right? Sunday. Yeah, so I, I, I did, but I got it yesterday. Oh, here it is. Nonstop. Thanks, 100. So the, uh, the message said, um, so I won't say any names because I don't want to disclose that, but he sent you a nonstop thanks. Not the message was recently. I had the pleasure of working with Rob during his recurrent training. Rob came. To, Rob came to training extremely well prepared. He also prov- proved his abilities as a great FO and future captain. His performance on the R18 was one of the best I've ever seen. Kudos to Rob for his efforts and professionalism. A great asset to Legacy. airlines and absolute pleasure pleasure to work with. Wow, like, sweet, that yep. was good. Only one Check question. Airman. How much did that yeah. cost you? Right. Well, <laughs> after after I after I practically slammed the airplane simulator onto the runway, uh, <laughs> one of the landing, uh, it, it, it took it was quite a bit. <laughs> I had this one simulator landing this weekend, which was just horrific. I mean. The plane just fell out of the sky from like 30 feet, it seemed like. Oh. <laughs> but it, it was 50, the- uh, 30, bam! <laughs> yeah, it, it was the the visuals on the sim to me yeah. are just horrible. They're, and they know that, they know that, yeah. Oh man, like it, it doesn't look realistic. I mean, it does in a lot of scenarios, but this these, like the runway lights look like they're out of focus the whole time. Like you're- mm. 
yeah. you're sitting on the runway and even if you're low visibility, you know, 300, whatever, and you can see the runway light on the side, it looks like it's like I take off my glasses. I mean, I'm looking at you now. I can't see it. It's really foggy. I mean, so anyway, when I was making the landing, I just had no perception. I was just going by the 50, 40, 30. Yeah. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm just, this is what I normally do about now. But as we all know, the simulator handling just kind of doesn't feel exactly the same. And we just went. And uh, everybody had to get their back checked after that. But uh, we're all okay. (laughs) My favorite uh, PA that I've ever heard in my lifetime, I was a very green pilot back at the regional days and I had a landing. It was a carrier landing. It wasn't like, you know, a hard landing, but it was a carrier landing, you know. Yeah. One of my better carrier landings, even though I was never in the military. Um, and the flight, you could hear the flight attendant in the back going, well, ladies and gentlemen, after that landing, please be sure to check your overhead bins and be very cautious when opening them because your I, your items have definitely shifted. <laughs> 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 I was like, oh, oh that's funny. God, Captain's like, open the door. I'm like, no, no, don't open the door. He's like, nope, you got to hone up to that one. Open the door and I want you to stand there. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Stick around. We'll be right back after the break where we'll follow up with the 737 Max and a little bit more about Aviator Tony's most recent trip. So my captain had one. He was doing his Cat 3 approach. And on the 737, the captain always does the Cat 3. I'm pretty sure it's yeah, same wide. Yeah. Uh, but the weird thing for a 737 at Legacy uh, Cat 3 approach, you have to turn off the autopilot at 1,000 feet. So the captain hand flies the approach all the way down to the runway in the cat three conditions, which makes oh. no sense to me because really me, I could fly an ILS at only 1800 RVR and I could fly it all the way down to 50 feet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but him, he has to fly it hand flown, you know, fifth down to 50 feet and virtually zero, you know, vi- zero visibility. Um, and land the airplane. So he's looking through a HUD and that's one of the reasons why he has to hand fly it. Um, and actually the 737 is certified to land auto land, um, with the two autopilots, but we just don't have that certification at our company. So, um, so the other alternative is to hand fly it. Anyway, he's, uh, flying through the HUD and he got just, just a, a, you know, small distraction in the cockpit. And I don't remember what he, he told me what it was, but he missed the flare cue in the HUD and the flare cue is a little um, basically font that, that you follow um, in the HUD to flare the airplane mm. on landing. Um, so you have a nice greased landing right at the, you know, aiming point and everything like that. Well, his, he got distracted just enough to miss the flare cue in his, in his eyesight. So he didn't flare. Oh. So 
you know, 750 to 850 feet per minute, we hit the runway. Oh! <laughs> it was like three wire maximum break. You know, oh, we're like, shit. oh my God, if you hear parts in the, in the simulator break and, you know, simulated overhead bins come falling down. <laughs> well, you know, at least it was in the simulator and not in the real life. Yeah, you know? it was but funny. speaking of, were you, when you were in uh, ground school, did you hear anything about the return of the 737 max? That was one of the um, topics we talked about. Um, we do expect to get back into the max um, in late December. Um, so they are, they're actively retraining all of the 737 pilots at legacy airlines, um, in the max simulator to get them qualified to fly the max. And as far as, uh, official notice from uh, legacy, um, there's an article that they released to the company and I could read it if you want me to, it's quite lengthy, but basically, um, in a nutshell, they're going to fly the legacy, uh, the Max a couple times um, with with uh, non revs, and um, so they're not going to fly any passengers, revenue passengers, and they're just going to run it throughout the system to uh, demonstrate, you know, it's it's safe to fly, mm-hmm. and um, and and I think they're also going to have it somewhere where people, general passengers, can see it. Mm-hmm you know, smell it and touch it and kind of, kind of get, get back acquainted with a, with a 737 max. But then um, I believe on December 20th is when we're actually going to start flying the plane in revenue service for uh, from, and it's going to be mainly based out of Miami. Mm -hmm. So let's see, let me make sure I get that right on December. I'm sorry, December 29th, we'll resume scheduled service with two daily flights or one round trip from Miami to LaGuardia yeah. through January 4th. After that, we expect to gradually phase more 737 MAX aircraft into revenue service throughout the January, throughout January, with up to 36 departures from Miami Hub, depending on the day of the week. Mm. So, yeah, it's kind of exciting. I'm, I can't wait to uh, fly it again. As uh, I don't know if you knew, but um, I, got, I got to fly the MAX on IOE. It was actually the first airplane that i actually flew was the 737 max mm-hmm. and coincidentally it was the chuck airman's first time flying it too <laughs> so we were both brand new to the airplane and uh i i mean i have no i had no relevance as far as what an ng or a max flies like but i can tell you the max was beautiful man it was brand new i think it had five landings on it wow. prior to you know us touching it and uh putting a little bit of uh, stress on the landing gear, but <laughs> <laughs> testing but it no, out. <laughs> it, it, it was great, man. I mean, it, the screens are nice on it. They're, they're bigger. Um, the, uh, the plane is a little quieter. And of course you guys have that in the, in the, uh, in the Airbus, the, the leap engines, mm-hmm, the Neo. Yeah. That on the Neo. So those are nicer. They're quieter for us and they take a little longer to start. And that's kind of the bigger, biggest, you know, non-complaint complaint that we get. But, um, yeah, it's a nice airplane and I can't wait to fly it again. And, and as you know, and I know that's going to be the safest airplane in the sky. I mean, after all of the, you know, all of the stuff this plane has been through the company Boeing, um, 
you know, they're going FAA and everybody, NTSB, they're all going to make sure this plane is the safest airplane in the sky. For sure. And I think it will be coming out now. They've changed a lot of procedures for us as far as um, flying the Max. There's a, they're incorporating a couple of memory items that we have to uh, know to fly the airplane. And of oh. course, as you can imagine, one of them is a runaway stabilizer. Um, so that one is going to be a memory item and about two or three others that we're going to have to memorize. So um, right now in the, the NG, there's zero memory items. We don't have any, any at all. So it's kind of nice, but, you know, I think uh, rightfully so there's, there's going to be a couple of memory items that we're going to have to deal with. And yeah. uh, we already kind of dry ran it in the NG, in the SIM, the memory items for the uh, stabilizer trim runaway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, pretty straightforward it's it's quite a it's quite an event to when you uh when you realize how it happened yeah and what you need to do to to overcome it and it it it, it kind of sneaks up on you um it it you know it it seems like it'd be quite obvious and evident but it it really really is a sleeper of a, of an issue until it gets to the point where you're like, Oh crap. Till it bites. This you. is yeah. Yeah. This, and, and it's almost, if you don't, you know, immediately react to it. Um, you'll be in a lot of trouble really quick. Well, it sounds to me like it's a lot like the uncommanded swerving on the Embraer. It, it really is. It really is. And, and, you know, cause, uh, like we talked about that on the uncommanded swerving on the Embraer, the first thing you almost want to do is reach for the tiller. Right. You know, on the runway, because, you know, you're trying to steer the airplane and that's what basically steers the airplane on the ground. But you can't do it. You have to, you know, hit the steer disconnect button and and basically use differential braking and and bring the airplane back to a stop. Um, And on this runaway stabilizer, um, you know, what you try to do is, you know, since the nose is starting to trim down, you immediately try to trim up with the thumb switch which inhibits the trim momentarily. And you're like, oh, okay, it stopped, you know, cause as soon as you hit the trim switch, it stops, but then you let it go and it starts doing it again. Ah. And you're like, oh, <laughs> do it again. And you hit the button and you're like, okay, all right, everything's good. And then you let it go and it's like, oh, more, <laughs> keeps going more, but then it becomes like a heavyweight. I mean, you're really yeah. holding 75, 80 pounds there the whole time, just trying to hold the nose up. Because oh. you can't move the trim and you just have to really fight, you know, everything that's happening and get the words out. Stabilizer, runaway stabilizer checklist, you know, right away. Because if you don't start that checklist, you're going to be holding that 85, 80 pounds until we get to the point where you have to cut it out and start retrimming it. Yep. So um, it becomes a handful. So uh, anyway, uh, it's good training. It's good to know that you know, we know exactly what to do now and, um, you can, we can get out of the situation in a relatively, um, short amount of time with very little effort if we catch it early enough. So your um, training for the 737 max is now officially complete. Well, no, no, it's oh, not. I have, to, I still have to go through a max training, um, oh. at the company and they're actually going to do that training in the max to um, certify us because that's one of the uh, mandatory training requirements to certify the aircraft and the pilots back is yes you have to go through that particular training in the max simulator Hmm. so they're going to run everybody through the max sim at uh in dfw 
And for the Miami pilots, they're using a simulator out of, uh, I guess it's CAE in Miami. So, so they'll go through all that, but we can simulate that in the NG for now Mm -hmm. using, you know, certain programs. So we were able to see it before we go into the max and and take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like it's relatively straightforward training too. I mean, you already got a sneak peek of what's involved. Um, but it's interesting, yep. and it's very uh, good news. I, I too, yeah. I'm very fond of that aircraft. I've uh, not flown it, obviously, but I've I've ridden on it. It's a very comfortable airplane. Um, and in a recent article from bizjournal.com uh, entitled, Here's What American Southwest and Legacy Say About the 737 Max's Return. Uh, this article is by uh, Evan... Hopfer. It was published on November 23rd, and I'll have the link in the show notes. It says that the Federal Aviation Administration lifted its 20-month order prohibiting the 737 MAX from flying passengers last week. Now airlines are thinking about how they want to integrate the aircraft back into their fleets. The two carriers at C- Seattle-Tacoma uh, International Airport, or SeaTac as we uh, as we know it, um, American Airlines Group Incorporated and Southwest Airlines uh, Company, has uh, anticipate different timelines for reintroducing the aircraft. American envisions the first 737 MAX passenger flight before 2020 ends, while Southwest said that the jet will enter its fleet later in 2021. Both carriers anticipate significant training requirements for their pilots before the plane carries passengers again. American, a code share partner with SeaTac-based Alaska Airlines, will fly nonstop commercial flights in early December, as you mentioned, uh, Rob, there, to demonstrate the plane safety. The company leader told employees in a letter last week. On December 29th, the carrier will fly a round-trip flight between Miami and New York once a day through January 4th. And so, you know, it goes on with a little bit more detail, uh, but it says here, unlike before the pandemic, there is no pressing need for carriers to get the plane back in its fleets as soon as possible because airlines currently have too many airplanes for the amount of flying demand uh, that warrants it. So American and Southwest were two of the largest operators of the 737 MAX back when it was grounded in March of 2019, after it crashed twice in a five-month period, killing 346 people. So, you know, this is good news for the operators like Legacy that uh, have a few of these MAXs uh, and that are anticipating getting more from Boeing. Uh, There's a couple other articles out there that came out actually about uh, five or six hours before this podcast was recorded, indicating that the European Union has also uh, started to implement a timeline to return the 737 MAX back to service in the uh, EU. So great news. Great news. Thank you for sharing uh, your experiences with the training. Uh, It's always uh, fun to hear, especially on a different fleet, uh, what the training is. is like. So, you know, yep. I thank you for that. You're welcome. Where do we go from here? <laughs> well, I think we can squeeze everything in here in 20 minutes. Yeah. Well, for myself, um, you know, we were talking about coming back, you know, flying a little bit. You, you got to fly a trip right before training, which I'm sure was extremely helpful to kind of, you know. Sure get, was. Get back in the saddle before you're being tested. To all mm-hmm. the emergency procedures that you're required to go through in training. For myself, I had, you know, multiple weeks off, getting a lot done around the house. But as I mentioned earlier, the uh, getting ready to come back to work, it takes me a little bit longer to prepare, a little bit longer to make sure that my EFB is up to date, that all the 
all the uh, updates have been completed, that I'm current with my charts and my my uh, manuals and everything is current. Yeah. On top of that, I have to pack. So I check the weather, all the places I'm supposed to go and what the, how many days am I going to be gone and what are the hours? Am I, am I going to have the opportunity to go for a run or go for a workout uh, yeah. on, the, on the layover? And so my first flight was a red eye, which not having flown in a while, it's been a long time since I was awake during my walkle, a window <laughs> of circadian low. And, you know, we, we talk about walkles all the time. Yeah. When we're, t- when we're talking about what we were at the onset of the podcast at FAR 117 and, and flight time, and if you're in a flight that goes into the walkle period, that could be an issue. Um, and it's tough. You know, even though I took a nap yeah. in the middle of the day and I tried to stay up a little bit later a couple nights before the trip started to get my body kind of used to being up, it was still, <laughs> it's still tough, you know, yeah. to, to be awake during your walkle. And then you land in Miami six in the morning and you you get to the hotel as quickly as you can. The sun was already coming up. You, you shut the curtains, you, you put the clips on the, on the blackout curtains to make sure no light comes in. You, you try to bring the mind down from the intensity of flying an aircraft, yeah. the operation of an aircraft. And that's hard to do. It takes me and it takes most of the people I've discussed this with about an hour to settle back down and get into it. And uh, so after about an hour of, you know, getting unpacked and getting the room mm-hmm. cooled down and situated, finally got to sleep. And the weird thing is you get to sleep, but the body says, hey, usually you're awake right now. Yeah. So after about four or five hours, I naturally kind of tend to wake up. So yeah. by one, two o'clock in the afternoon, I was already wide awake. I mean, that's it. I was done. And I didn't have much time before I had to get ready because I had a 7 p.m. van time that evening. That was my 12 hours. You know, you you fly all night. You know, you get four or five hours of of rest. And then you have to get up, get ready, get a meal, which I did. I I was able to grab a quick bite to eat next door um, at a a really cool restaurant there by the hotel, a fish place, a little Cuban uh, fish platter was wonderful and then uh got back to it back to the airport and flew miami to las vegas now this wasn't a red eye it was was just a late night flight by the time we landed at las vegas was around midnight um but i flew with a captain that i had flown with about two years ago and i remembered him and after talking after a little while we're like yeah we did fly together and i went into uh this app that we have here at uh at legacy uh, it's not a company app, but it's a, an app that one of our pilots put together. And I, I know we've flown together. So I went and did a little quick background search. I was like, yep, we flew together on the <laughs> December 18th of 2018. <laughs> Isn't like, that neat? Wow, really? You got it? I'm like, yep, we did a trip and we actually did a Miami layover together. So, so there you go. <laughs> um, like, That's cool. So next time I, I'm going to look people up and then when I go, yeah, we flew together. It was a uh, Miami layover. It's on the... 13th of December back in 2018, you were wearing a uniform, if I remember. Oh, correctly. boy. <laughs> uniform, yeah. <laughs> like, wow, how do you remember all that? Oh, I'm good. I'm just good. <laughs> so, so I'm flying with this captain. It's a really great guy. Uh, we got along really well. Um, and coming into Las Vegas is kind of tricky. 
And the reason is there's some terrain around the airport, especially at night. There are a lot of illusions that happen, right? You got high terrain, you got dark surrounding, you got a very bright city, and you got an airport nestled right in the middle of it. So even if you're following all the instrument flight rules and all the approach plates and you're hitting every altitude perfectly, as if you're visual, as we were, you look down, you're like, man, I look high, but the pappy says I'm correct. Yeah. And we even noted that. He's like, man, you look high, but you're right on glide path and the pappy yeah, looks perfect. Yeah, I always get that at going into Vegas. Yeah. There's, there's a couple, there's a handful of airports that are like that for me. And Vegas is the most notorious one for me where you just, you look at that runway and you're like, man, do I look high, but everything is indicating we're right where we should be. Yep. And if you are cleared the visual and you're, on your course, on the transition from your initial fix to your to your initial mm-hmm. approach fix, and you and they say clear the visual. It's highly recommended that you stay on path because a lot of people tend to cut the corner and dive, and there's a hill right there, and and yeah, there have been airlines out there that have had some terrain yeah. Cheap whiz, <laughs> alerts, yeah. yeah, some ground proximity warning. Uh, terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. <laughs> Not something you want to hear <laughs> Go. at nighttime going into a mountainous uh, airport like that. Oh, no. So, so yeah, everything was good. But again, we had to talk about the single engine procedure. And in the event that we have to do a single engine missed approach procedure in Las Vegas, uh, what are we going to do? Do we do the company pages or do we do the standard? And in our case at Legacy Airlines, uh, at least on the Airbus, we just execute the ILS missed approach procedure as published. Nothing special, but you have to brief that. Um, so yeah, coming in, it was a, and my captain said to me, Hey, uh, you know, I did the first landing into Miami. It was pretty good. Don't make this one a greaser because if you do, then the bars set really high and then, you know, how are we going to follow that? Right. So I was like, Oh yeah, it's just being a normal landing, but I haven't flown in three weeks. So, Hey, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> And, you know, even a blind squirrel gets a nut once in a while. <laughs> I came in. Hey, right. I was like, oh, he's like, I told you not to make it a greaser. I was like, oh, hey, you know. You should have said that wasn't my greaser. You should see my greasers. And that was that was a rough landing. <laughs> Matter of fact, I did kind of comment on that once we, you know, once we were at the gate. I was like, yeah, man, that that was a pretty good landing. But uh, I've done better. I've done better. better. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and then we, so we get into Vegas and we stay at uh, a very nice place off, off the strip there. And, uh, but again, you know, you get in at midnight, mm-hmm. I, I'm almost tired. I'm not used to these schedules, but what is this schedule? So, you know, right. again, settle down, get cleaned up, right to bed. And uh, we were talking about recording a podcast the next morning, but you know, schedules kind of were what they were. And I'm kind of glad that we delayed it to today because I slept in, I was tired. Yeah, um, good. You know, and and it was a good thing that I got that rest because in the middle of it, as we mentioned earlier, I'm on this what they call a zero timeline. So I'm every time I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I check: has anybody posted a trip that they don't want to fly that I could potentially request that I pick up from them? Because that's the only way I'm going to pick up flying and get paid. Yeah, and uh, there was a trip. Which oh, really? I luckily, but it wasn't posted on the company forums it was posted on a facebook forum that i follow that it's a closed mm-hmm. forum for pilots in los angeles on the airbus that have been uh zero timeline and uh i said yeah if you don't mind i'll take that trip from you it's 
I think it was during a New Year's Eve trip. So this pilot wanted to get rid of it. So he, he went to go, okay, sure, no problem. Uh, you're the first one to request it. So here we go. Da, da, da. Five minutes later, he goes, hey, uh, it denied your pickup of this trip. It's like, it did. And this is the code I got. And he sent me a screenshot. And it said, DL not complete. Unable to process transaction. Oh, man. Uh, so what is DL? Okay, so every quarter at Legacy Airlines, we have some distance learning that needs to be completed. And they give you like, what is it? 90 days or 100? Yeah, a whole 90 quarter. Days. Yeah, a whole quarter. <laughs> so you have, and normally I I see this in while I'm on a trip, I'm on a layover, right. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on the beach, you know, relaxing. <laughs> You know, I, I might bring my and iPad and headphones yeah. and just like keep pressing next, next, you know, until I get it done. Right. But yeah. I didn't have, I haven't had those opportunities and right. I, I've been off for weeks, if not multiple weeks on end. And I don't want to do it at home when I'm at home, I'm busy. So right. I didn't get it done within the first 30 days, which I normally do. And it's due on the 15th of December. So I was like, oh crap. And I'm like, dude, yeah. can you just give me an hour and I'll, I'll, I've on a layover in, in Miami, I'll just get it done. So here I am on the layover in Miami. And, and if anyone follows my Instagram account, there's <laughs> a little video I posted. <laughs> oh God, I got to sit through this all, all in one sitting, you know? And so I'm doing it. And then of course the, uh, the longest presentation was like the, the California sexual harassment video that was very professionally produced but extremely yeah. cheesy and yeah. oh yeah answer questions and everything <laughs> yeah so i'm like trying to just like knock it out and get it done yeah. it was interesting i did learn a couple things so i'm very grateful for that but that's good so i got it done and i sent him a message I'm like hey uh, i just got my uh distance learning done uh i got the email verifying that i i completed my distance learning can you try you know, trading this trip again. He's like, yeah, sure. No problem. So you go, I got the same message, bro. I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, well, maybe I can call the base planner and see if, you know, I'm not missing something. And so I, I call and of course it's, yeah, to reach the base planner, Ugh. please call back Monday through Friday from 9 oh, central on. time to 5 p.m. So I'm like, oh, okay, this is not going to work. And I tell him, you know what? It, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking maybe it takes time from the completion record to go from one system to the other system. That's the scheduling system. So can you just try it in the morning? I mean, I'll do the trip and I know I'm legal for it. So, cause I have nothing, <laughs> I have nothing else the whole month. Yeah, right. So he's like, yeah, no problem. We got all month to, to deal with it. Oh, goes, that's but I'll, good. I'll try it again. Well, I was like, thank you. I really appreciate that. So I ended up, you know, but it was time to get ready, got ready for the, for my next trip. And it was Las Vegas to DFW. Aircraft swap into a uh, an Airbus 319 with a high elevation certification. Oh. And yeah, because uh, we have a higher landing minimums on, on particular 319s. And then I got to fly to Guadalajara. So that's it. So uh, I uh, got on board and did a little review of my drift down tables and a little review of my diversion guide. And we have this critical terrain chart that we have to follow. And uh, so all set to go, did a little bit of studying. And before takeoff, we were good to go. By the time I landed in Guadalajara, I got a ding on my phone. Uh huh. Your schedule has been modified. So yes, it went through. Thankfully, now I got at least a four day trip. 
Sweet. And then by the end of the day, I was able to pick up one more, uh, which happens oh, to be great. a Christmas Eve, Christmas Day trip. So, <laughs> yeah, the only flying I've really focused on uh, in these past two months with the, uh, the zero time is I f- I'm flying during Thanksgiving and through Christmas yeah. and through the New Year's. And hey, I'm not complaining. At least. Yeah. At least I'm flying. Um, I'm flying too. Yeah. That's the only trips that were people were willing Out to there. give up. Yeah. I know. So I know. It's crazy, man. And, and uh prior to COVID and everything, you look at the open time list and there'd be, you know, you could have any trip you want. There'd be, you know, four or five a day, you know, ranging from day trips to four day trips. And now the whole month is empty. There's not even one yeah, not one trip out there. Yeah, I don't know how people so, are doing it, and it's kind yeah. of yeah. But we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, we were talking about CARES Act. We kept reading these articles and how you know the Congress was oh just uh, don't even don't even furlough. We're gonna get this care. And here right. we are, months later, we're still waiting. And from everything I've seen, it looks like nothing's gonna happen because it's it's a tug of war, and it's not gonna happen until after uh, the swearing in of the next president if that's even going to happen. So let's see what happens. Um, And I'm really hoping that come January, February, we're going to see some relief, financial relief for the protection of jobs, not just pilots, but just jobs in the industry and all of the airline industry and hospitality industry. Um, But yeah, so it was an interesting experience to kind of be able to pick up. It's very stressful. It just adds to another level of stress that we're oh, yeah. dealing with. Yeah. Um, the the drift down escape routes, uh, maybe one day we'll kind of have a whole podcast on that. But um, yeah, that's a good idea. Interesting training uh, that we're constantly, kind of like when you're in GA, you're constantly looking out the window going, okay, if I have an engine out right now, where am I going to land? Where are you going to go? Yep. Where, what's the closest airport? You know, it's kind of like that, but it's because that you have mountainous terrain with moras that are up to you know, up there, I think they're like, yeah, six, seven, 12, some 000, are 17, and some are 17, feet. some 18. Yeah. In yeah. that area in central Mexico, there's some, yeah. Mountains so you up can't there. just go directly down to 10,000 feet. Right. Cause you'll, you'll hit the ground before you get there. Right. So let's say you're at, uh, <laughs> like what we were 39,000 feet in a, uh, an Airbus 319. And all of a sudden you get, bam, Rapid cabin Rapid depressurization. depressurization. So you need to get down and you need to get down now. So you go through right. your memory items, your checklist, all that stuff. You don your oxygen mask, you know, get the communications going. You, and you start an emergency descent. Okay. So you can't just go down to 10,000 feet because the, I believe most fleets and most airlines, most operators say, okay, you go down to 10,000 feet unless... You know, you have a, a grid mora or an MEA or a minimum in route out. Any other constraints. Right. Yeah. That that has something that you can't Residence. go down a 10. Well, that's exactly what these escape routes are. So you plug in all these uh, fixes and you go, okay, you go direct to the nearest fix. And from there you follow this path and you can descend on the path to the altitude prescribed for each segment until you get to an airport that has an elevation that is more, you know, commensurate with a single engine or a emergency landing. Um, right. So we did, we did that. And, uh, and then on the last day, Guadalajara was wonderful. The hotel was relatively abandoned, um, but it was a yeah. very nice establishment. They had very good cleaning procedures in place. You actually had a okay. table set up. 
so as soon as you got off the van, there was a table outside with spray bottles and what they were requesting that you do, it wasn't required, that you spray your bag down and your all your stuff with this disinfectant before you roll it into the hotel. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's nice, you know. It's like nice, yeah. Little Lysol spray, Extra. whatever it was. Yeah, something, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, quick overnight and then didn't go out, just had breakfast, got ready, and back to DFW the next day. And uh, about a two and a half hour sit, and then back to LA. So wow. very nice. Uh, some language barriers uh, coming out of Guadalajara. I had yeah. to have the clearance read back to me three times. I kept looking at my captain like, did you get it? He's like, nope. <laughs> yeah, they always yeah. give it to you in a different uh, or a different format, not format, different um, out of sequence, a different sequence. Yeah, and not only you that, I mean? mean, she spoke English well but it was very fast and the accent was so heavy that my mind had to translate even though it was in english my mind had to translate what was being said these waypoints she was even giving me the waypoints phonetically and phonetically i was like oh oh oh, oh, um yeah was that a j or a k or yeah because sometimes when they say you know they'll give you a phonetic sequence and then immediately following that they'll say the word direct or direct to but your mind hears the accent in there and you almost think that that word direct to is actually a fix that they're trying to tell you where to go right so then you're like oh wait what was that again and then you're like oh okay then you write down this other fix and you're like wow, I really need to listen closer, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So, and I have here the, the flight release, uh, we were, and they don't have digital, uh, PDC or digital ATIS. Uh, so we had to get everything via voice. And so she gave me this departure, you know, and, uh, and then it was, you know, direct to, uh, uh, Goyas Directa Dangos and Directa Charlie Delta Romeo Uniform Juliet 40. And I was like, Wait, 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 wait. Uh, I got Goyas. Uh, what's after that? Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> Can you spell Goyas, please? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, golf, Oscar, Yankee, Alpha. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. Uh, oh, golf. Okay. Golf, Oscar, Yankee. <laughs> and so you know, I felt bad. I had to make her repeat it three times. But hey, yeah. we got it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was you know, a nice departure. We had, again, the single engine procedure in case we lost uh, yeah. an engine, you know. I was going to say real quick, I just learned something the other day, and this is a great thing about aviation is you're always learning something, right? Um, You said that in Guadalajara, they don't have CPDLC or PDC, right? Is that Uh correct? Uh, uh, Yeah, PDC. PDC or CPD. Do you guys use CPDLC also? The NEO is the only aircraft on our fleet that is currently using the CPDLC. So we were in Mexico City the other day, and they do not have PDC. And they do not have CPDLC. Okay. But the captain, he's been on the 737 forever, um, actually flew the 737 at Airways, I believe, when they had the Dash 200s. Okay. Um, so he's been on a 737 forever. So great person to fly a 737 with because it's a plethora of knowledge. But anyway, we were requesting the pd uh the clearance via voice mm-hmm. um and uh so instead of them saying legacy one two three you're cleared to dfw via blah 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 he said go ahead in the in the in the um in the fms 
in the in the CDU and request go to the, the ACARS link and say press the button that says request clearance. He's like, we never use that. If there's nowhere in our manuals that tell you that you that 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 is active, but push it and watch what happens. And I'm looking at the charts and I'm like, ah, it doesn't say it has PDC or CPDLC. So I yeah. don't know how this is going to work. Two minutes later, you get a ding dong in the, in the, uh, in the airplane, which is telling you you got an ACARS message, rip it off the printer and you got your whole clearance printed out for you. And I'm how like, does that work? This is awesome. Cause now you don't have to call you know, clearance in Mexico and listen to the controller try to give you a clearance in English that you're going to have to decipher back to your English <laughs> and and uh, put together the route. So it was just like you'd get a PDC clearance, but <laughs> it, and it, and it literally just says in our CDU, it says request clearance. That's it. So does it, it go to dispatch say, and dispatch gets it from the FAA desk and the FAA desk then sends it to the dispatcher or sends it to the airport? I, I honestly work? couldn't tell you. It was such a, wow. you know, it was such a moment in my aviation career, career where you kind of go, that is awesome. <laughs> 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 you know, that's so FM, you know? <laughs> oh, is, man, that's great. All you've ever known was, okay, if it doesn't have... If it doesn't say PDC in the 10-9 page, right? Or if it doesn't say CPDLC, then you're going to have to do voice. You right. have to listen to the ATIS, call them up, and get it via voice clearance. Right. But this one had it, it doesn't say that in in Mexico City, so I was like, all right, I'm going to have to call voice. And he's like, hey, wait, try this. Wow. And when we called for taxi, they didn't even ask. You know, they're like, okay, they they yeah. knew we had our clearance and cleared for takeoff. And okay, now I'm now I'm curious. I'm gonna start doing some digging because if the Airbus has this game changer, it would be, it would be. And you kind of have tested in uh, Mexico. I mean, yeah. If it comes back with nothing, then you know you're gonna have to call them up again and just be like, hey, all right, give me my clearance. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that was cool. Just do like the Sam Elliott uh, guy that you had for your. your sim ride and be like, this is legacy one, two, three. Yeah, I'll pick up my <laughs> clearance. That's it. That's it, man. It You're going to have to say that again real slow. As you can see, this is the speed that I talk at. So this will be the speed that my brain can process it at. You know, I, and I know I've mentioned this before in a previous episode, and I, I think we've shared this, uh, you know, amongst each other as well. Best thing I ever heard ever was, you know, here we were flying into Chicago and, you know, the Chicago controllers, you know, they're great. They're the best controllers, in my sure. opinion, uh, in, in the country, honestly. And, you know, they'll they'll tell you they're supposed to only give you three a, a, amendments to a clearance or three clearances at a three time in, at in one, one transmission, yeah. right? So they should tell you like, you know, uh, whatever, uh, sandpiper, one, two, three, descend, maintain 5,000, turn left heading one, eight, zero, intercept the localizer, whatever. So yes. three things. Well, mm-hmm. here we are, you know, and it's a busy day. It's VFR. So they've got everybody stacked like on top of each other. You got to hold your speed to the knot. And they're like, I told you to 180. Why? How come, how come you slow to 170? And I was like, okay. So, <laughs> Everyone's like doing their thing and everybody's like reading back, you know, blah, 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 blah. and all of a sudden you hear the controller say, you know, they were talking to an American Airlines mad dog. 
And they're like, uh, American, you know, whatever it was, uh, you know, descent maintain uh, 5,000, turn left heading 180, intercept the localizer, uh, clear the, or hold 180 to this and hold, you know, then uh, clear the visual, da, 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 and like five things. And there's like a break in the transmission, which doesn't happen at, at silence, O'Hare. Yeah. It's silence. And, and so like after like a second or two of silence, you hear, now, 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 hold on a second. You either need to say that again three more times or say it once real slow. Like <laughs> everybody was laughing. The controller is like, I'm sorry, American. Uh, and then they gave him one thing at a time. Descent maintain 5,000. Descent maintain 5,000. Turn left heading 180. Turn left heading 180. You know, and it gave him the whole, the whole thing. And, it, and then at the end of it, he goes, now you see, isn't that much better? <laughs> I love it, man. That's, that's oh, great, shit. man. <laughs> I'm like, those, those American guys are awesome. Oh, like, man. <laughs> well, uh, it looks like it's that time. Uh, are you enjoying Squawk Ident Podcast? We really hope that you are. If so, we do encourage you to visit our website at aviatortony.com, or you can visit us uh, there and go to the homepage. You can find multiple methods to contribute financially to our show by becoming a producer and help us with production expenses. You can also leave us audio feedback, show topics that you would like us to cover, and reviews on what you would like to see and hear. Uh, you can view the many photos that we have uh, shared on the flight line tab. Uh, we also enjoy receiving your emails as well. You can send us uh, emails either through the link on the homepage or on the contact us page, uh, or you can just send us directly at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee dot, at gmail.com. Under the Guestbook tab, you can view some of the photos that our featured guests have shared with us as well. Facebook and Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident Podcast, and YouTube and Twitter users can find us under the handle Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. We encourage you to support us on the YouTube channel with a like, subscribe, and a share. And please don't forget to select the little bell to be notified when new videos are uploaded. In closing, I would like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, everyone. And again, great show, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, great show, Tony. Thanks for having me. All right. See you guys. Take care. Take care.